Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Jerry Jones. Actually, Jerry Jones and I talked on this program just about a year ago, and we're going to focus today on the fact that he is the speaker for a Martin Luther King event this week. Actually, it's when this is airing. It will be tomorrow, Thursday, at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon, starting at six o'clock. So you'll get a taste of his expertise and interesting ideas today, and hopefully go see him tomorrow. And if you're listening to this on Sunday afternoon, the event has already passed, but still Jerry Jones has a lot to say. Welcome to this conversation, Jerry Jones. Thank you much. Glad to be here. So let's just start because this is a focus on Martin Luther King Day that's coming up and your presentation at St. Thomas Thursday, tomorrow at six o'clock or last Thursday, if people are listening on Sunday. But uh, what is the topic? What are you talking about? And how is your presentation in recognition of Martin Luther King Day? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, It's ironic that uh, they asked me to speak this particular time. uh, Since I was about as local as you could get, I could come in and talk about uh, civil rights or racial relations in this area, since I'm a native of the area. I have worked at Emory Henry for decades and have written this book on growing up in this area. So I fit a lot of the points that they wanted to center on. So I said, no, I'd be glad to. Well, your reputation precedes you, Jerry. Everybody knows about you. You've been active in this area, and you've been active in keeping stories alive. Your book is called Go and Come Again, Segregation, Tolerance, and Reflection, a four-generation African-American educational struggle. Where would people get your book if they were interested? Well, uh, the the traditional route of going online to places like uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and so forth. There even is a website that has my name in it. Uh, it's J. Jones, all run together, uh, Glade Spring. Uh, JerryJonesGladespring.com. So, well, we hope that people will be interested in your presentation at St. Thomas on Thursday and in your book, Go and Come Again, available at Amazon or again, as you said, JJonesGladespring.com. But let's talk about your experience growing up in this area from the perspective of Martin Luther King and the struggle to make things better, to get equal opportunities for Black people in this country. Jerry, your grandfather was a slave. Yes. What do you remember? What do you know? What were the family stories about your grandfather? Well, he was enslaved in with County. Uh, he was born, I believe, in 1844 it would take a year or two. Uh, And of course, when he was freed, my thought is he could have gone anywhere. The first questions I would ask would be, well, why did you choose to come to Glade Spring? Um, We sort of suspect, and we can't say this for sure, that one of the reasons he probably came here is because he already knew someone that was living in this area that would be like a benefactor so that he could have money to build his home. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but we do know that 
in the original deed for this property, uh, there was the name of someone else on the deed that was not a kin person. So we kind of figured that this person, what do I know about him personally? A couple of things that my mom told me. One, he had uh, Native American heritage. Two, he could read and write, which was kind of rare for some uh, people who had been enslaved. And he died in about 1921 uh, in this house where I am right now. Can you imagine, what do you think about when you think of the fact that your grandfather was, in these words, not in fact owned, he was enslaved, but that he that there was some white man who, who said he owned your grandfather. Well, it, if, you lay, if you dwell on it, it can do things to your mind. The fact that he actually lived as long as he did, uh, 1921, I think he may have been, if he was not 80, he was pretty close to it. So I suspect while his beginning... Uh, parts, the beginning years of his life were rough. He managed to say that his, for his last years, he saw the birth of all of his grandchildren, uh, my mother being one of them. There were eight children born in this house uh, in my mother's generation. Uh, his daughter, my great-grandfather's daughter, who was my grandmother, he was only one of two of the children that he had. One child died. And so I guess what I'm saying is while his starting off was certainly not good, his uh, final years uh, sort of mitigated some of it. You know, part of the purpose of Martin Luther King Day that we celebrate is because of his leadership in this country, how he tried to make things better and tried to get the system to change. Your great-grandfather was a slave, but you actually grew up in a time when schools were segregated and they, the words of the day were you went to the colored school. What do you think when you hear that now? And first of all, let me just, I'm going to have to interrupt here for a second to say that we do seem to have a technical issue. It obviously has to do with the wireless signal somewhere along the way, and we're getting a bit of fade out, but we're just going to tune in and pay closer attention and hope to uh, hear every word that you say, Jerry. You went to a colored school. You sat in the back of the bus. You look back on your life. You said that when you think about your grandfather and slavery, it can do things to your brain. What does it do when you look at your own past? Well, for someone like me who has uh, been writing books about my experiences and talking about it, and by the way, the book's been out now for 10 years, so even you and I have had conversations about this off and on. So the point is well taken that maybe more than some of my colleagues, I mean, maybe I am thinking more about the past than a lot, simply because that's part of what I do. But I don't internalize it. What it does is I look from, there's an old song we used to sing in church, something about, look how far he's brought me or something like that. Uh, when I think about just my early years and contrast that with the years now, it 
it makes me so appreciative. And obviously, I've not done it all alone. People have helped me. People have guided me. People have prayed for me. The list goes on and on. But just being able to contrast the, the beginning and now is something that, in my mind, is something to be appreciated. I'm going to press just a little bit further. I, I hope that people don't think I'm just trying to go for the I don't know, the sensational or something, but I know that Martin Luther King wanted us never to forget this history. And that's part of what he was fighting for. And you don't internalize it. You're a very, very positive person. But tell us about the trip that you took in 1960, I think it was, on your way to D.C. Oh, yes. What you had to do to make sure you had a place to stop and eat and go to the bathroom. Yes, it was uh, my brother's journey. He finally had a car. And by the way, I need to tell you about my brother briefly. He was about 12 years older than me. So that means that when I was still a toddler, so to speak, he had already finished high school, uh, had enlisted in the Air Force, and won at his last position, the last place he was stationed was Northern Virginia. So that means he kind of knew Northern Virginia and the D.C. metro area maybe better than some. So when he got his first car, a 1956 Pontiac, I remember details, uh, we were going to D.C. It would be my first trip up there. I can't remember remember whether my mom had been to D.C. before with all the relatives she had in that area. But anyway, it was the three of us. And you're exactly correct. In 1960, Black people who were traveling, especially in the South, had to sort of do some extra planning to figure out where it was okay to stop. And I remember one stop in a little place called Culpeper, but it's somewhere between uh, Charlottesville and the D.C. area. And there was a Black restaurant where we stopped. Of course, we also carried food with us for the trip. And I'm sure we had fried chicken or something that was to my liking back then. But the point is well taken. Back in the 60s, that was something you probably have heard about the movie Green Book, I think. So the Green Book was a guide to Black people about where they could stop and where they could be served because white establishments a lot of time wouldn't let you in the door. Exactly. Jerry, you also went to um, integrated schools. You lived in Glade Spring, but uh, just getting to school was a pretty big ordeal. So tell us about the school that you went to. Sure. Seven uh, grades one through seven were here in Glade Spring in the Black elementary school that was in the northeastern part of the little town of Blaze Ring. White school was just by coincidence on the opposite end of town. So after seventh grade, we were bused to Bristol to Douglas, that's two S's on the end of Douglas, Douglas High School uh, for grades eight through 12. Ironic, the first year that I went to Douglas, was also the first year that Patrick Henry, which is the high school that services this area, opened. But it was not our privilege to go there. So you live a mile away from a public high school and you're not allowed to go there because people don't want 
white people and black people interacting with each other. Little right. kids in the same classroom would be horrible exactly. somehow. So you had to go to Bristol. And did you graduate from high school at Douglas? Yes. Uh, the year was 1965. And that was the last year that that school served as a high school for Blacks. The school went on for a year or two, maybe more than that, briefly as a junior high and finally as an elementary school. I think even the same principal that served us continued in uh, the capacity of principal for those two schools. Tell me again what year it was that you graduated from high school? 1965. 1965. Do you remember which year it was that the schools were integrated in Washington County? The fall. In other words, I finished in the spring, like May, early June, and the following August slash September was integration. So I missed it, but just by weeks. You graduated from high school. You'd been to black schools all of your life. Right. Because that was the law. That was the law. And then you had a choice of where to go to college. Tell us about that decision. So I had a choice. The choices were Virginia State College, as it was called back then in Petersburg, was all black. Nowadays, we refer to the black colleges as HBCUs, historically black. But back in 65, it was all black. The other choice was Emory and Henry. And you may ask, listeners may ask, well, how was that? I mean, Emory was not historically in the 60s an integrated facility. In the summer of 64, the summer between my junior and senior year, I ended up in a summer enrichment type of workshop thing at Emory and Henry. It was sponsored by the National Science Foundation and it was on mathematics, I believe. And we were on campus for five weeks. And when I say we, there were 25 students from all across Virginia. And even though I didn't realize it at the time, some of the powers that be at Emory thought that that would be a good vehicle, this summer institute, to start the overall integration of Emory and Henry. So in other words, come 1965, uh, they thought, Emory and Henry thought, that I would be one of those pioneering students to be the first full-time on-campus African-American at Emory and Henry. I chose Virginia State for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, number one, being that I had had 12 years of segregated education. The teachers I had did the best they could with what they had. How did we know how we stacked up against students from other schools across the Commonwealth, having been graduates of Virginia High and Bristol, et cetera? I chose Virginia State. So if I'm hearing this correctly, Jerry, and it's just, it's very disturbing you weren't confident that you would measure up because you'd been in segregated schools. You didn't know what the competition would be like, and you were surely more comfortable choosing an all-Black school. And you can tell me whether that's correct. I, I think I've heard you say that before. And if it is, how ironic, because 
look how you did measure up. You got right. your doctorate. You taught at Emory and Henry. Yes, yes. And that's that's part of the story that people are fascinated about. I've lived long enough where I can have some uh, retrospective uh, survey of my life. I need to also add what you said is true about not knowing to what extent my education was strong enough. And it was more about not the quality of the faculty at Douglas, by it being a smaller school, by design, they could not offer as many courses as a large school was it? simple as that. And then there's the personal side of it. I don't mean to imply that segregation or lack thereof was the only reason I chose Virginia State. It was also about living four miles from where I would be going to college. And because I already was, how shall I say this, somewhat well-known in the Black communities of this area because of my church work and being the leader of a gospel choir and all of this as a teenager, I made the point uh, to someone not too long ago, if I'm at Emory and Henry and things don't go well, everybody will know it. Not just Glaze Spring folks, Abingdon folks, Bristol folks, wherever people remember me as any guy that plays the piano. So that was one feature. The other feature was my mom had struggled for years to raise my brother and me. I felt like she was entitled to some years where she could do her thing without having to worry about, did Jerry get this and was he doing that and so forth. And then too, there was an element of discovery in the back of my mind of how it would be that far from home in a traditionally Black environment, something that in retrospect, I can say probably one of the better choices that I made. And please keep in mind that I was 17 at the time. So you graduated and you took off to Virginia State College. You graduated, you became a teacher, you uh, continued your education, you got a doctorate in education and ultimately retired and then moved back to Gladespring and taught right. at Emory and Henry College. Let me remind listeners that I'm talking to Jerry Jones, author of Go and Come Again, Segregation, Tolerance and Reflection, who's gonna be honoring Martin Luther King on Thursday, tomorrow, January the 13th at six o'clock in his presentation, people can just show up. And for people who are listening to this on Sunday, sorry you missed it, but we're happy to be able to present Jerry to you today, despite the, the technical issues that we seem to be having. Jerry, I want to turn to more contemporary issues. Critical race theory. Here we are, 2022 now, just down in Tennessee, across the Tennessee line, and a teacher there was fired for talking about white privilege. I've heard people say that Emory and Henry has never been racist. And you just talked about when they decided to integrate. But some people are very upset at the notion that teachers would talk about systemic racism in this country because it would make white kids feel like they were oppressors and black kids would feel like victims. I'm actually going to be teaching a class this spring. For the first time in my career, 
I'm concerned about discussing race issues in a classroom. Does discussion of systemic racism make black people feel like victims? Do you think white people feel become aware that they are oppressors? What are your thoughts on that complicated issue? thing that comes to my mind, the age of the students who are involved in this discussion, people have asked me for forever, ever since the book came out, what were my personal feelings when it was discovered that we were going to integrate the schools? Or what was my feeling about why it took so long for Brown versus Board of Education? And they passed it in one decade, and then a de- decade later, I was still going to a segregated school. And my response to all of that was simply that at age eight years old, I probably didn't know what Brown versus Board of Education was, probably didn't know what the Supreme Court was. So if we're talking about critical race theory, and by the way, I have to confess that people started abbreviating things, and at first, I didn't know what they were talking about either. As a computer teacher, we had an abbreviation for decades that was CRT stood for cathode ray tube. And jokingly, I said, well, what are they talking about picture tubes in the old television sets? (laughs) I guess my point is simply that age appropriate is the first criteria. High school kids maybe talk about racial issues. As college students, I almost required that you talk about it. The only exposure that I can tell you that I have had personally was at Emory & Henry, where where for 10 years or more, I taught a course that was the freshman orientation class. And the topic of my course was racial identity. And we discussed a lot of the students in that class were first-year college students. And repeat again what you said. You said... They were first-year college students, and you talked a lot about what issues, did you say? Racial-related issues, such things as, for example, is the African-American church more homophobic than other churches? What is meant by such things as hyper-masculinity? What is the deal about some churches splitting over issues of race? issues of homosexuality and so forth. And these are first-year college students. And we don't really discuss it to the point of getting, how shall I say, bent out of shape. It's a matter of topics that are current and being able to write about it in a fashion that is grammatically correct, more or less. I'm a fanatic about the grammar no matter what the topic. So I I just want to emphasize what you just said, and it gives me courage and confidence, is that on the college level, these things have to be discussed. Yes. And for me, who has no background in sociology other than having lived my life for 70 plus years in a society that has racial issues, I was okay teaching that to college freshmen. I got good evaluations for it, yes. And the classes were usually, obviously, 
integrated. I would get a lot of students, black and white. Many of them were from other areas, other places in Virginia, other states and whatnot. And they would put on skits at the end of the school year and talk about such things as stereotyping and other uh, current issues. And they would bring in topics such as uh, Black Lives Matter and whatnot. In other words, don't talk about it if you can't write about it as well. And that you exhibited uh, the the idea and the goal of having civil discussion, even when it's a controversial issue. My guest today is Jerry Jones. We're airing this on a Wednesday night, tomorrow, Thursday, January the 13th at six o'clock. He will be speaking at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon. You are welcome to just show up there and meet Jerry Jones and listen to his talk. If listeners are hearing this on Sunday, the event has already happened, but I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Jerry Jones on some of these issues related to Martin Luther King. And Jerry, what I'd like to do on the closeout of the show is to have you just touch back to Martin Luther King as quickly as you can. Tell us what your understanding was about Martin Luther King at the time, how he affected your life when he was alive, and what the purpose of this speech is uh, tomorrow. Surely. Uh, There are so many things about him, but one thing that many people forget is that he was a resident. uh, He was a leader that at times felt like he was not qualified for the job that he sort of ended up having to do. Uh, The reason I say that is because there are any number of times that I sometimes look around at things that I've had to do in my teaching career and I say, but I didn't study this. I didn't train for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I was not prepared in my mind at some points. And so I think that it's good to know that someone that we revere as much as Dr. King had those instances in which he felt like he was doing something that God wanted him to do, even though he at times felt like he was not up to the job. I think that's something that is not talked about much. After all, he was human, just like all of us. He had his weaknesses. He had his doubts. And sometimes we tend to put him up on that pedestal and forget about uh, the human side of him. Can we just close out with what did Martin Luther King mean to you in your life? Sure, sure. He was a role model. I had several role models growing up. Of course, I never met him. Uh, In my uh, next book, I'll be talking about some of the role models that I did meet. Uh, and how they affected me. And having grown up without a father, I think it comes as no surprise that Black male role models were a big deal to me. Jerry Jones is my guest today, author of Go and Come Again, speaker tomorrow, Thursday, January the 13th at six o'clock, St. Thomas Episcopal Church. You can just show up. Thank you, Jerry Jones, for being with me today. My pleasure. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in. If you heard this program on Sunday, the event has passed. But again, we hope you enjoyed listening to Jerry Jones and some reflections of his. This is This Conversation, Wednesdays at 6 and Sundays at 2 here on WEHC. 
Thanks again, Jerry. Thanks again, the listeners. And please stay tuned to 90.7.